5, and we're going to incorporate letter 6 tonight and, and push through, because if not, it'll be 2027 before we finish this book. Um, now, the reason we're doing 5 and 6, particularly 5 and 6 together, is because it's the same subject. <clears throat> Wormwood is discussing basically the same subject. Did you guys see I got an Apple Watch? Yeah. Linda made me. Why is that? Linda made me do it because she wanted me to be like all the cool kids. No, I didn't ask you nothing. Stop. Um, what? It does make sense. Well, she's had one for a long time, but now I'm cool. Last night I was sitting at dinner. I just got it yesterday. I was sitting at dinner with some guys, and twice I thought a spider was crawling up my arm. This thing starts vibrating. I was like, ah! oh, yeah, hey, it's 7 o'clock. <laughs> Did I tell you guys before I jump in? My son was working on, he built a fence all along his front of his house and around, and he was working on it, and he got up under the tree that hung right over it, where, at the end of it where it came in, and a tree was hanging over. And he was kind of under the, do that, and stuff, and, and he just kind of reached up and did like that to the branch, kind of knock out of the way so he could hand, do that. And, um, and a big nest of spiders fell on his head. And he said hundreds, of, and literally when he said, I stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. I, I need to sleep tonight, stop talking. And he said he was doing like that and doing like that. And he's not sure, he doesn't, he's not sure if this was medicine or it was the spiders or something, because he was taking some medicine that reacted wrong. But he, he thinks he got bit about 20 times, like this, all along his lip, because the next day his lip was like this, and it had all these dots on, going down into his beard. Just thought I'd let you know that. What? Yeah, now he's fine today. He lived, which I told him, I said, I wouldn't have lived. He said, Dad, they're just spider bites. I said, no, I would have run out into traffic <laughs> and stood in front of the biggest truck I could find. That's how you kill those spiders. Okay, so what is, what is letter five and letter six about? What? What'd you say? I, I didn't hear you. Say it again. That's, yeah, that's good. I wouldn't have verbalized that, but that's solid. Short term, short term. Oh, yeah, we're going to, I'm sorry. We're going to do the microphone. Because we've got people that are watching online, and they can't ever hear what you're saying. And, uh, and it seemed to work really well last week. I had quite a few people saying that they liked that. So if you've got to say something, raise your hand so we can get it in, in the live stream. And Mike, make sure that microphone's turned on in the live stream. <laughs> Just because it would be a waste of time if we didn't. So, um, short-term gains, long-term losses. What else? What's, what's like the big subject that he's discussing through this? It, it, he goes through all the, the personal life things, but what's the big subject? War. And which war is this? World War II. Okay, this was written during World War II. All right, you know, I don't know if I mentioned this, but some of the history of this, um, most of what C.S. Lewis wrote, he very rarely did he sit down and say, "I'm going to write a book." Okay, what he did is he wrote a bunch of stuff for newspapers. In fact, the Chronicles of Narnia were stories in the newspaper um, for for years, and he was writing them because he married this lady that had a son. And son was about 10 years old, I think, at the time that they got married. And so he started, um, he started telling this boy stories at night, right, before you go to bed. How would you, like, you like the Chronicles of Narnia to be your bedtime stories? Like made up on the fly, right? I used to make stories up to my boys all the time when I was um, putting them to sleep. I just, they would say, tell us a story. So I would open a book, and then I would just tell a story that I wanted to tell them. But uh, not, not C.S. Lewis good, you know. Maybe Louis L'Amour good, but not C.S. Lewis good. So, so he started, after a while, he started writing these stories down, and he put them in the newspaper, okay? He did the same thing. That's how uh, mere Christianity came around, was these were articles. These were, these were like essays kind of thing that eventually happened, all right? So, so the same thing with this. He starts writing this, doing this, and, um, and putting some of these in the newspaper, and it was just overwhelmingly popular, just amazingly popular. And uh, by the way, also, um, Oxford, 
ridiculed him like crazy and said that this was a waste of time and he should never write, screw tape letters specifically, should never write this because you're, um, you're sensationalizing uh, theology and that there is no place for that in the church. I wrote that. And you, want to say, you want to say to Oxford now, you're an idiot. So, all right, so that's it. So we're seeing how um, there's this constant, there's this constant back and forth. Um, you know, put, focus, on, focus on little things and make them big. Take the big things and make them little, right? Okay? So as we jump into um, letter five, anything, anything jump out to you in the first paragraph? I think he did a radio show too, didn't he, in London? Yeah. Uh, and uh, what I got out of that first uh, uh, paragraph of five was, you know, there's a saying that there is no atheist in a foxhole. And that's the type of people he was talking to and the time that he was talking to. You know, there was a lot of people looking for inspiration and looking for an answer. And I think that had a lot to do with why he wrote like he did and why it was so effective. Yeah, and he, he, wrote, he wrote a lot of stuff specifically about the war. But it's interesting, the, the way you're saying that, he, as he's walking through the, this letter, these two letters um, to Wormwood to Screwtape, or Screwtape to Wormwood, he, he's, um, he's, he, it's, it's, it would be hard for me, I don't know how your brain is wired, but it would have been hard for me to write this book, to always keep in mind, you're the bad guy. And you're writing it from the demon perspective, not Jesus' perspective. Because some of the ways he does this, it's almost like he's talking, talking them into it by, by acting like he's not talking them into it. I'm saying us, right? Not the demons. But he's talking to us. You know that, right? He's talking, he's not, this is, there's not a real demon named Wormwood or Screwtape. This, he's talking to us, and he's trying to get us to know stuff, but he's doing it by using the flip side of it. I just, I just think it's brilliant how he does it. The last part of the first paragraph says, Give me without fail in your next letter, this is screw tape, talking to Wormwood, in your next letter, a full account of the patient's reactions to the war, so that we can consider whether you are likely to do more good. Now, look at this to do more good by making him an extreme patriot or an ardent pacifist. Both of those are not healthy for us. You say, well, what about extreme patriot? What would be bad about being an extreme patriot? You can actually do things in the name of war, in the name of obedience to, to rules and everything else that are not okay with God. You can have more devotion to your country than you can to God. Rick? Um, you're going back to that short-term gain versus long-term. By focusing on the patriotism or the war, even a pacifist, you're focusing on the here and now and not the everlasting. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the Assemblies of God was a pacifist movement when it first began. I remember the first, what we would consider general council, which is what I just went to a couple weeks ago. The very first one was in 1914, I think, 1914. And, um, and we were a pacifist movement. Did you know that? Yep. Strongly a pacifist movement. And then a few years later, this crazy thing called World War II happened. And we had to decide, are we really pacifist? Mm. Are there times when you have to stand up and fight for what is right? And I know many Christians that are pacifists. They say no war under any circumstances. My first reaction is, well, then just hand your wife and your daughters over first because that's what's going to happen. That's where it comes to. There are times when you must fight for what is right. And by the way, it's all through Scripture. Now, I don't like war. I don't like anything about war. But I do know that there are times when you do that, when you have to do something. And, uh, and we had to decide, are we a pacifist organization? 
Now, I think what, if we're not careful, what we swung to probably in the 70s and 80s, maybe even into the 90s. Um, of course, 9-11 really did this to the church too, but we became almost overly patriotic. Now, guys, you understand, I'm saying that from the point of view that I'm very patriotic and I would go to war, no problem, okay? I, I joined the Navy, um, and literally two years later, we're going to Iraq. <laughs> Thank you. Brain stuck. <laughs> Go for it. Well, she was there when they called and said, uh, you're leaving in 48 hours. Let's mobilize. And we both held each other and said, I don't want to go to war. <laughs> and I asked her, would you go for me? So. so I think you could also take this sentence and replace a patriot and pacifist with Republican and Democrat. Yeah. And say, you know, you can be an extreme Democrat, extreme Republican, and um, and not not be firm on, you know, the word on, on because these parties move and they change and they shift and they yeah. do what they think is right for for them, and we have to stand on something that doesn't move. And these these parties or or people or you know and 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 that's just as that's just as wrong and just as harmful for us to do. Yeah, I, I'm an extreme conservative, and the, and the order of my conservatism is moral conservatism first. It's not fiscal conservatism, okay? If you're a fiscal conservative first or a political conservative first, you'll vote with your party or you'll vote with your wallet, but you're supposed to vote God's word. We're supposed to vote God's word first. We're supposed to be moral conservatives, okay? There is no moral liberalism in the kingdom of God. Right? You understand that? That doesn't exist. People can say, oh yeah, it does, but it doesn't. There is no moral liberalism in the kingdom of God. God's very clear about this is sin. You do that, you go to hell. That's that simple. Okay? When it comes to fiscal conservative, it's not as much of a biblical concept. And then politically conservative, it's farther away even in the concept of, of a biblical concept. Because it depends on what time in history or what country or whatever, I mean, what you would call political conservatism can move and sway and things like that. But moral conservatism never, ever, ever changes. Right? And this, that's basically what he's saying. He's saying it from the war point of view, but you can take that with anything. There is, there is a lines to be drawn in any setting, in any circumstance. And you're either on the line with God or you're not. You're either doing what God has said or you're not. Okay? Anything in the next paragraph? This would be the second one. Thank you. I don't need it. Can you tell me which paragraph we're on? This would be the second. Yeah, I did. I, I answered the phone today, and it answered on my watch, and I, and I heard... Hello? My, my hand is talking to me. But I'm cool. That's what matters. I'm cool. I underlined uh, what the, the, the fo their focus on bringing souls to their father below. And what permanent good does it do to us, you know, whether they're fighting or not doing what they're supposed to or whatever, unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our Father below. Do you want to expound on that? Well, um, that we also need to focus on souls. And what good does it do if a person comes to church if <clears throat> a heart hasn't been won? Yeah, we, guys, at the end of the day, we have to put our priority on whether people know Jesus or not. Everything else is going to be secondary. Everything else in life. I, I wish we had the ability to like take one step into heaven for like 30 seconds and step back out just to get the, the spiritual context and the feel and the presence of Jesus and everything else. And, and I think it would so transform us, right? But there's an argument against that. Remember, the rich man said of Lazarus, um, you know, can I, can I send, the, the rich man said to God, can I, send my, my, uh, can I send somebody back to tell my brothers? 
And, and God said, there's plenty of people telling your brothers. There's all kinds of people telling your brothers. The, the, the reality for us is we just don't really down deep get a full um, understanding, respect, awe, conviction of the Holy Spirit to really push us forward. I really don't think we process what it would mean for our children, our next door neighbor, our, our brother, sister, mother, father to go to hell. I just don't think we think about it. I think we just kind of put it off into nothing. It's like it's not really going to happen or it's not really bad or, you know, that so much of the church nowadays doesn't even believe in a hell. How good, how good has Satan been at lying to us? As much as the Bible talks about hell, as much as it talks about hell, there are people that don't believe in hell. Christians that don't believe in hell. Well, if there's no hell, then why witness? It don't matter. I, I just I don't think we I don't think we worry enough about that. And he's obviously saying in the opposite that um, do whatever you want to do. All okay, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is to take souls to hell. That's what he's saying here. And we should be saying the exact opposite. Whatever it takes, whatever we got to, okay. But our priority has got to be taking souls to heaven. It's got to be our priority. A little bit farther down than that, um, I, I was looking at this sentence that says, but if we are not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy. He's talking about war. In this tribulation to the enemy, while tens of thousands who do not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than self. And he carries that theme for a little while through there. That if we can just fo- keep them focused, keep, them, keep their eyes away from true values and, and a surrendering of self, or a giving of self, I think would be the right way to say it. If we can keep them away from really seeing themselves as being able to give of themselves to change things and do stuff. And if we can keep them from really looking at true values through the process. Guys, that is a very strong description, in my opinion, what's going on in our world today. We are so concerned with all these silly little things, all this stuff, that we don't really process values anymore, morals, focus on any of that kind of stuff. Yes, ma'am. I was just waiting until you were done. Just on that same note, it says, um, uh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Uh, Not just like focusing on ourselves, but like saying if they can keep the focus off off of the war. Yeah. um, Yeah, off of the war. And it would be better if all humans just died in costly nursing homes, not having to go through those trials and tribulations of the wartime or whatever else is going on. They just had cushy lives and never really had to deal with anything, you know, bad. Right. What, what's the point? Where? Why do we need to focus on God if we don't ever have to go through anything bad? Yeah, the very next sentence after that, he says, And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. A face-to-faceness with your mortality. We, we don't think about mortality that often until you get older, right? You, specifically, like before you're 40, you don't think about mortality very much. And the older you get, the more you start thinking about it. And you get up and look in the mirror one day, and you're like, oh, and then you realize it's not Mr. Death, that's you. And, and you think about it. But, I mean, really, when you're 25, you don't think about dying. You do things you would never do at, at 75, and he's saying that if, if we, if, and he's talking from the demon point of view, keep their, keep their focus off of the reality of death. And then he says later, if you do keep them, if, you, if they do focus on death, only have them focus on the fear, not upon the reality of it. You notice when you travel abroad that countries, countries where war was fought, you know, in, with, within the people of life's lifetime, generation, and I'm on the ground, on in that place, the, the very different reality that, that that war has for the people there than, than in America, where none of us can remember a war fought on our soil. And um, our, our wars are always off somewhere. Yeah. And so we have a very different, we have a very different reality, even to like what's going on in Afghanistan right now, 
than than uh, than countries where this has happened and they know people. Yeah, I think it makes us softer as Christians. Yeah, I, I really think if something happened and and um, and war came to our shores, not like 9/11, but literally an invasion and kind of thing. I think it would take months before our country would go, oh, we're in war. I don't think we have a clue about this kind of stuff. You know, I was, I was looking at this today, the people that were trying to hang on to the outside of the airplane as, in, as it was leaving Afghanistan. And then uh, a couple thousand feet up, they can't hold on anymore, they fall off. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the average 30-year-old having such an understanding of mortality and death and life and the evils of somebody like the Taliban having that kind of, oh, I've got to get on this plane. Now tell them, tell them that the COVID is crawling down the runway and they'll climb on board like crazy. You understand, we have such, I know I'm being picky with this, but we have such a soft underbelly in America right now. We have no idea of fortitude and bravery and understanding and values and, and really a, 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 a sense of, of worth and country worth. We don't have that in America right now. We've lost it. The, the, the few that we have are our soldiers. And, and nowadays, it's not even all our soldiers. We're losing that even within the soldier ranks because of, of the Pentagon and the stupid rules that are coming out. But... But, I mean, it used to be a big thing. It used to be a big thing. I, I, I don't know if you guys remember this. I, we were just talking about this the other day. 9-11 does not seem that far off to me. But, you know, people that are graduating high school were born after 9-11. But either way, do, do you guys remember the day after 9-11, which would have been 9-12? <laughs> it was a Tuesday. Um. The lines outside the recruitment offices were blocks and blocks long. We still had, even 20 years ago, we still had something about our country that was still alive. And I don't know that that's still alive anymore. I just don't. I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's still alive, but I think now it's going to be more of a Boston Tea Party alive. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want to go down that road. So, Scott? Yes, sir. Uh, a short story about one of Screw Tape Letters, uh, Screw Tape's success stories. Don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Saeed Katoub. He's the father of radical Islam. I read a book about him. It was really interesting. He came from Egypt. He was Muslim. Came from Egypt right after World War II to America. And he was questioning his religion, his uh, uh, Islamic religion. He came to America. Uh, America was just getting over World War II. And everything was just starting to take off. And he landed in New York City. The only job he could get was in a uh, homosexual brothel in New York City. That's one of the first places he's landed. The reason that I f remember him so much is he came to actually came to the university that I went to in Northern Colorado, uh, uh, UNC, and uh, went to these dances. And he talks about in this book how he went to these dances and the soldiers were dancing with the girls. And and uh, it the long story short is it drove him back to Islam as being his religion that those rules and those regulations of Islam was the right way to go. Look how many people were affected by that guy's life. No kidding. If, you, if anybody wants to look that up, it's uh, Saeed Katoub, and he's the father of radical Islam. Yeah. Somebody else have something? Yes, sir. Yeah, in my mind, if you just close your eyes and listen to these words, 
It was written not in 1961, but in 2020. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as they have been trained, promising life in the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job without with, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. <clears throat> I was talking with somebody just a couple days ago about this, had to do with the church world, and he he's a minister in the, in the uh, church world, and, and he was just talking about how difficult it is nowadays to really, he, he wasn't a lead pastor, he was an associate, and how difficult it was in, in the church world nowadays to actually speak truth. And, and, and he talks about how that, um, that even in church settings, and he's been in different church settings, that you're not allowed to take certain stances. You're not allowed to do stuff. You're not allowed to speak truth. And I asked him, I said, so, you, so you're saying to me that the pastor of the church or the leadership of the church would say to you, do not talk about this. And he would say, yes. Do not talk about that. And, and I'm not saying crazy stuff. I'm talking the cross, the blood of Jesus, sin. We do not talk about these things. We, we do not want to make anybody upset under any circumstances. So we just kind of walk down the middle of everything and don't take a stance on anything. Don't take a stance on anything. And again, I've talked about this before. This is uh, People say this stuff to me all the time. I just have never experienced that personally in the church world. I've experienced it from people in the church world that are not, I mean, I'm not connected with them. They're like a pastor of another church in town or something like that. I've experienced it, but I've never experienced it personally where, you know, I had pastors back in the day that I worked for. They would never have said that to me. They would have got upset at me if I wasn't preaching about sin kind of thing. Yes, sir. Um, we moved from church to church trying to find a good place to be. We found it here, by the way. Um, but there's a picture floating around now that kind of summed it up. You know, it shows a true lion snarling that goes, that's biblical Christianity. In America, it's now the cowardly lion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, did you send me a meme about that or something? Yeah. Yeah, I liked that, by the way. You know, I was sitting in um, Panera a couple years ago, and I was sitting with a missionary, and, um, and this, this uh, other guy. Now, I, I want to defend the guy just a little bit because I don't think he was totally thinking the way it sounded, okay? Because we immediately ridiculed him and he backed up on it. But, um, but this other minister in town that I know, known for a long time, he, he came over and sat down with me and this missionary and he said, hey, I'm pretty excited. I'm about to be going to um, Africa. And he told me where in Africa, I don't remember now. And he said, when we get over there, he said, man, and, and he looked at me and this missionary, which are much older than him, and he said, I'm excited. I'm going to do like you guys. He said, I'm going to go old school. I'm just going to preach the gospel. And we both looked at him and he said, well, you know, I said, old school? If, if the gospel's old school, what's new school? What's new school? I'm interested. Lay it out for me. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I just, you know, you won't have, we won't have like lights and all this. So we're just going to be like in a church, just preaching the gospel old school. I'm like, you got to stop saying that. <laughs> because he's been in a church for so long that it's all lights and it's the sound and it's the smoke machines and it's all the stuff that, that, that you got to have all of the videos and the cool graphics and everything else. And then you got about this much of Jesus. And you just kind of squeeze him in on the side. And he'd been doing that so long that he could not process the idea, just preach. Just preach. Guys, back in the day, 20 years ago, I, used, I, I did a, almost every sermon I did, at least every other sermon I did was an illustrated sermon. I would do some kind of something and, and drama with it or have people doing things. And I just kind of stopped doing that after a while. Because I thought to myself, how much extra do we have to add for people to care? I mean, how much, 
How much whipped cream do you have to put on top of broccoli before you'll eat it? A whole lot. No, I like broccoli. Brussels sprouts, though. There ain't enough whipped cream in the world. But, I mean, think about what I'm saying. Why, do we have to have all of that other stuff? And you guys, I mean, you guys pick on me sometimes because I preach a long time. Um, I know churches that are very adamant. In fact, I have a friend of mine that's a pastor that he, he gets it down. He says, I preach 23 minutes. 23 minutes. How, how do you do it? How do you do that? 23 minutes. Uh, Michael, shh, shh. <laughs> because you're trying to fit a service into one hour yeah they fit a whole service into an hour um, you know what this is the thing with me if I was going to a church that they said we, for whatever reason I don't know why just make up a reason we only have one hour to have church okay let's sing one song and then preach to me for 50 minutes because I need the word the word it's the word of God. It's not all the other stuff. All right. I pick on that stuff all the time. Okay. First part of letter six. First paragraph down at the bottom. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. This is the enemy, which is who? <clears throat> no. God. God. Jesus is the enemy. I've noticed that. I mean like a life pattern here. Okay, so Jesus wants men to be concerned with what they do. Demons, our business, the demon's business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Not what they do, but what will happen to them. One very selfish, self-focused. The other is, what can I do? I always think of JFK, the, the part of the speech where he says, ask not what... Um, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do you realize the Democrats would destroy JFK today? Do you realize JFK is more conservative than most of our Republicans? All right. Because this is, this is big, specifically with all this COVID and everything else. We're all worried about what's going to happen to us. What's going to happen to us? It's about me. I'm scared. Everything's bad. It's going to happen to me. And it just seems to be the rule of the day and everything. It's just, what can I get out of life? Forget everybody else. What can I get, James? It, that This whole paragraph kind of reminds me of a Hitchcock movie. It makes you think about the possibilities and keeps you distracted from what is real. Yeah. Yeah, that's the concept of a scary movie, isn't it? It's not what actually happens, it's the anticipation of what happens. Right? Rick? Oh. Never mind. No, I, I'll share. This is something I've, I've seen. I, I, I got into that mode. She did. She decided not to. Oh, okay. I got Are you sure you don't want to rethink it? Okay. <laughs> I got in the mode once in my career where I got more concerned about what they were going to put on my evaluations than what God wanted me to do. And that's when things fell off the tracks. I had to get it back on. And I stopped worrying about those things. And that's, that's what happens is with many ministers is they get concerned about what is going to happen to me. Yeah. Because if the people don't like me, they're going to find me. Okay. Then move on and do something else. You know, in a general sense, let me, let me show you my personality a little bit. In a general sense, I don't really um, concern myself greatly with whether people are liking me or not as a preacher, okay, as a pastor. Um, I, I want people to like me just like everybody else, but when I'm preaching, I don't really let that concern me. It's, it's not part of my thinking process. But where it, where it begins, what's that? Yeah, we, are we all in agreement there? Okay, so... <laughs> but here's where it gets me is when as I grow closer to people and I, and I develop really good friends when I know that they're disagreeing with something and I know this is where it bothers me the most when I know that it is harmful to them what's going on in their life what's happening and I know that what I'm preaching is in disagreement with them it, it almost eats my heart out 
it's hard for me to say this stuff. Now, I still, I still say it. I've just been doing this too long. I, I have to please God. I cannot please humanity. But man, that's when it gets me. But just like preaching like this, I, I really don't, I don't, it doesn't come into my head. If I say this, um, Christine's going to be mad. I don't think like that. That's not how I process. I think to myself, this is, this is truth, this is what we're supposed to say. And, and in fact, what I do is in my head, I think to myself, everybody's loving this. <laughs> Obviously true. <laughs> so that's why when somebody comes up to me after a service, and this happens, actually probably a lot more than you would think, and says, man, I just really disagreed with that. It catches me off guard because my first reaction is, how could you have disagreed with that? How could you possibly have disagreed with the depth of wisdom and knowledge that I have? So, was there somebody, were you going to say something? No? You didn't raise your hand? Okay, so round two, you got to say something this okay, time. Okay, I actually have something to stop. I don't know what happened to the other thought. Um, but just that same paragraph where it's talking about, uh, sorry, um, let him practice fortitude and patience to them all in advance. Hmm. And just um, for the, uh, to like a dozen different hypothetical fates, like sitting there and focusing on all yeah. these different, oh, I can, you know, this could happen or this could happen. Yeah. Like you sit there and misery loves company. You're going to sit there and you're just going to spiral and not going to go anywhere. You're not going to ask for help because, oh, it's just all bad and, you know, that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we, m most of our anxiety, stresses, and all that kind of stuff doesn't actually come from the job. doesn't actually come from our marriage. doesn't actually come from anything except in our head. We create most of our issues. We create our anxieties. We create the stuff. Have you ever had a conversation with yourself about somebody, what they think or what they're going to say or how they're going to process or whatever? And, and you realize 30 minutes, an hour later, you've had a conversation with somebody and they may not even know you're alive. Think about that. Well, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to do this, I'm do this. Or what if somebody thinks, what if this? And you know, what if I walk in and somebody doesn't like me? Guys, we can drive ourselves crazy with that kind of stuff. Wondering and questioning and processing and creating fears that, that aren't even necessarily real. And we create them in our hearts and our minds. And then we can dwell on them and they begin to control us. That's where it becomes very scary. They, they can actually control how we think. How we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about life. I, I, I know I'm picking on this because it's a thing for me. But I, I was in a store the other day and this, and this whole family comes walking in with masks. Nobody else in the store had a mask on. And they all come walking in with masks. And just for a second, I thought to myself, I would like to get in their head and, and, think, and process what they're thinking. I would like to know how they're thinking about this because I can't, I can't go there with them. It doesn't make sense. The masks do nothing. That has been proven over and over and over and over. Masks are worthless to accomplish something. We went to a doctor's. My dad and I went to a doctor's office today. We had to wear a mask while we were in there. I didn't even have one. It's good he had another one. He gave me his, and he just put his underwear over his head, so... But I, I don't understand that. I, we know that masks don't work, so I want to ask this family, but I can't because it would be rude, you know, it would be out of place. Or whatever. But I want to ask them, why, why do you wear the mask? What in, what, what in your head, what thinking process? Because to me, it's, it's, it's irrational, it's fear. It, doesn't, it makes no sense at all. But it's driving hundreds and hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of people across the world right now. Yes, who are we pointing at? Roy? How can a Christian today recognize the influence that Satan has on them and their thinking? And do they really analyze that it, that it is a possibility? How do they recognize it? Very good question. Somebody answer that. For you personally. Let's not make this general. Let's personalize it. 
This is how I know Satan is messing with me. I heard words. What did you say? Go ahead. Uh, for me personally, uh, it's when I'm really irritated at anything and everyone around me. Uh, it's like the smallest thing, I'm ticked off, I'm yelling, my, my blood pressure's high, and I'm like, why? And then I have to step back and be like, okay, what's going on? How's my relationship with the Lord? Because if, it's, if my relationship yeah. with the Lord isn't forefront, then I'm more irritable, anxious, angry, and then I'm like, man, I haven't even given God the time of day, you know? And that's when it starts to creep in for me. Yeah. I would say for me that too, uh, just extreme irritability. How many, anybody else on the same page with that? Irritability and anxiety. What's that? Irritability and anxiety. Anxiety? Just feeling like everything's going wrong and there's no way out, which is probably how a lot of people feel with the mask thing is there's there's no way out and this is what they're being told is the way out yeah yeah i wish we could just like somehow lose power to tvs across the nation automatically all at the same time for like eh, 10 years um anxiety fear it, it, that's a way that that should be a good litmus test like the flashing lights go off when there doesn't seem to be hope, that's a good thing there. Aiden, did you have something? Oh, um, discipleship, trusting people in our lives um, for things we cannot see. Sometimes we tend to get prideful or off base, myself, and trusting people who we allowed in our lives and give them the grounds to share scripture and say, stop. How, how do you know when you're becoming prideful? I don't know. I never experienced it. <laughs> no, it's with me. It's every day. Just ask me any time of the day. It's there. Wait, wait. Give it back, microphone. Give it back. How do you know personally that you're starting to struggle with pride? There's got to be thought processes or something or just natural catches. How do you personally know that Satan's manipulating you with pride? I'm thinking about myself too much. Um, I'm not thinking of others and what's beneficial for them. I'm thinking about what's beneficial for me. And my thoughts go in a plan of I can do this, then I can do this, then I can do this. And I just run with it. And before I know it, I'm, I'm losing ground and I'm losing being in touch with the reality of life, or what, how I will look. Yeah. I go down that path. Yeah. I mean, everybody else in the room is an idiot. <laughs> but I think everybody else... You've got to say it in the microphone, Michael. Okay, yep. So, uh, sorry. Yeah, well, when, when everybody else in the room looks like an idiot to me, then I know that I got a pride problem. I'm not going with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the thing that I deal it's not the angry or irritability, it's insecurities. So when I begin to think I'm being left out, um, I am not getting the recognition I need, or they don't like me, or those Okay, kind anybody of else got anything to say? <laughs> anything. Back to that being the everybody else in the room is dumb. <laughs> I kind of feel that sometimes at family gatherings. Anyway, <laughs> the I know, but you did something to me first. So, but if I, I when I start feeling that way, I'm crying a lot more than normal. Um, you know, whenever I start doing that, then that, it takes me a while to get to that realization that I am missing my study time. I am missing my time in the Word. I am missing all those things, and, um, and I know that every day when I do my devotions, I pray that God help me to keep my eyes on the truth, the reality, don't let me get um, upset about things that aren't real, because that's how I know that I have drifted, how I've gotten tired, maybe I haven't done what I'm supposed to do, is because I start really beginning to be insecure. 
Anybody else that resonate with them? Just you. <laughs> uh, one of the things I recognize in myself, and you said this on a Sunday one time, so I do pay attention to you. <laughs> um, but you were talking about when something irritates you about somebody else, that sometimes that's something that you're struggling with yourself. And so when I start getting irritated with something about someone, I, I try <laughs> to step back. I'm like, oh, am I dealing with this in my, my own life? And start to examine that part and, you know, talk to, talk to God about that. Yeah. James? Information overload. By the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, you're bombarded with these little gnats of information, and it never allows you time to think about the big picture anymore. You don't have time to digest it, think about where it sits in God's word. You're just constantly hit, and then you're distracted. So, so, um, so explain that a little bit more for you. How does that? Well, for me, by the time I get to work, it's every couple of minutes, new information's coming in. It's not connected to the piece of information before, so I never have a chance to digest anything anymore. I'm always bombarded by the news, stories, pieces of information that keeps me um, unfocused. So when I think about, you know, am I doing the right things, by the time I can sit down to think about it, I'm bombarded with other pieces of information, and I never have a chance to sit down and think about if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm doing right by God's word. Yeah. Somebody else raise their hand back there. Am I allowed to talk about South Park? Just sure. I want to bring that. Okay, cool. <laughs> South Park is amazingly prophetic. It, I can't watch it anymore. And but very realistic. Back then, but I, you were talking about the mask thing, and it all comes to Wait a second. You can't watch it anymore because you're married? No, it's oh, okay. just offensive. Too offensive now. It is too offensive. Used to have a lot of good points. Anyway, so I remember the episode they were making fun of uh, the nuclear age. And so the volcano was going to go out off in South Park, and they were telling all the children what to do if the volcano explodes, which is, you're going to die. But... If you stop, drop, and roll, the lava won't kill you. If you put a blanket over your head, the lava won't. The mass thing is the same, and people act like it's new, and it isn't. Yeah. It's been the last hundred years. There's, you always tell the general population they can do something. Yeah. But if that bomb goes off close enough for you to notice, you're dead. You guys, you guys remember, well, some of you remember, very few of you remember. In the 1960s, in school, they, ha they would have nuclear yep. practice, nuclear warning practice. What would you do? Get under the desk. Get under your desk. <laughs> 50s, 50s. Get under your desk. But as I was trying to reference to the book, he mentions in there, he's like, let them focus on what they can do to change yeah. the circumstances, not what the enemy can do for them. Yeah. And... In the difference the way I'm wired, which is more similar to you than most people, I don't process information personally ever. It doesn't work that way. When I see news bits, I always look at them in historical association and statistical probability and human patterns of nature. And I, I'm not seeing anything new. It's just sadder now than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it just is—it just seems to be so worldwide now. It's—it's it's like everybody's on the same page. Well, and I would say that social media has kind of perpetuated a lot of thinking—wrong thinking, right thinking, whatever. But it's just constant too. Like if you're on any social media, it's just, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? And I think that's the difference between now and ages past. Yeah. Is 
social media and and sometimes they're like this happened but there's not there hasn't been an investigation so why are we jumping to conclusions you know that kind of thing so yeah yeah when you say social media has kind of uh, contributed to this yeah like at about a 98 percent rate it has contributed to this well you get you get focused on do people like you how many likes do you get from one item yeah. and you stop focusing on god and you got to get on the social media it is do people still like me yeah. I don't I don't hardly ever I just don't hardly ever look at Facebook. I have read stuff from pastors that talk about you're not being a good pastor if you're not on every social media platform, always on talking to people. That's how you minister nowadays. I'm like it's not how I minister nowadays. I was just about to refer to that. that it drives me crazy. We have a lot of pastors that are judging other pastors because you're not doing anything. And you don't know what they're doing. Just because they're not posting it on social media doesn't mean it's not what they're doing. So it's happening in the church just like it is anywhere else. You know, they may believe just like we do, and many of them do. Many of them have the same ideas. Um, But because you're not voicing them where everyone in the world can hear, then they don't think that you do. Yeah, and then have a a 25-page argument rebuttal back and forth. I haven't, I haven't, I get on Facebook for one reason. There are Jeep forums on Facebook and I go to those. I thought it was about So if you're putting stuff on Facebook and you're like, hey, pastor, did you see? Probably not. I thought it was bad chaplain jokes. I I do see bad chaplain jokes. (laughs) And I'm also on a far side Facebook group. So, you know, but I just don't, I don't get involved in the conversations when I see somebody say something good or bad. Um, I don't do anything. And, and, I, and I also struggle with the like button because I know this is the way you're supposed to do it. Somebody say, oh, um, my, my husband had a car wreck and he's in the hospital and he's got eight broken legs and, you know, and, uh, and, um, and then you say, like that. I know what it means, but it just doesn't make sense to me. The word is like. I like that. And I want to put an emoji with a guy going, whoo, you know, I don't know what to do. I have never used an emoji in my life. Okay, so is somebody else, did I see somebody else? No? Okay, let me. I do think C.S. Lewis sums this up real well with the statement um, about Fix his attention inward so he no longer looks beyond himself to see, he says the enemy, I'm going to say Jesus, or his own neighbors. That's just straight, I mean, we're supposed to see Jesus and our neighbors. And so when our attention is fixed on ourselves, not on Jesus and not on our neighbors, then, then you know, then they've won. Yeah, a couple sentences before that, the, the, the two sentences before that, I think, because it plays into it, is very important. He says, let an insult or a woman's body so fix his attention outward that what he does not reflect on, what he doesn't process, I am now entering into the state called anger or the state called lust. Keep him, keep him away from those and make him think of something else. What... What you want him to think about is my feelings are now growing more devout or I'm more charitable or look how good of a Christian I am. Instead of thinking, wait a second, I'm stepping into the arena of lust. Stop it. Face the truth. So then the next part, the next sentence is what he was saying. Just keep them looking, looking at self. Everything's about self. You can justify any kind of sin if, you, if, you're, if you're selfish enough, if you're self-focused enough. You can, you can justify anything. So, um, okay, we'll finish with this one. Above it, a couple sentences. He starts off the paragraph with, an important spiritual law is here involved. Now, this is a demon saying this, okay? Important, an important demonic spiritual law. And this is, this is as right now as anything in this book. Um, The, the two sentences later. On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself. 
Not about the actual issue, but just being afraid of fear. Fear is now controlling you. Okay? It's considered as a present and undesirable state of his own mind, and when he regards the fear as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. In other words, when the fear itself becomes something that he must shoulder, it becomes normal to him. He becomes a martyr, and therefore he should be feeling this way. He is, it is necessary for him to feel this way. It is socially important that he be afraid. Guys, this is, this is right now. This is what we're doing in our country right now. You are ignoble if you are afraid. You, it's virtue signaling. You've got to be afraid. You've got to say the right things. You've got to be doing the right things. Because you care. And, and, I, and my irritation is just all the Christians now, church leaders all across the country that are saying, as a Christian, you better get the vaccine or you don't love Jesus. I'm like, okay, were well, you going to say that about the mark of the beast too? Because we're right there, baby. We are right there. Yeah, I, I've said this before. I don't think the vaccine is a mark of the beast. But everything in Scripture about the mark of the beast is exactly what we're stepping into in our country right now. Every single detail about it. So I don't know if it's the mark of the beast. But if you can't have commerce and you can't um, travel, you can't buy groceries, go to the store, put your kids in school, you can't do it. That's the biblical description of the mark of the beast. So I don't... I don't know how the vaccine is the spiritual mark of the beast. That's the problem with me is you're not giving allegiance to an antichrist, but it's going to look exactly the same. Well, somebody said it's a certex, certification yeah. exercise. Yeah, we're giving it a good run, seeing, seeing how it plays out. So, Hey, Pastor Scott, I've got good news. Um, many of you know that my wife and I came here because of COVID and this is the one church in town we found that did not close down. And so in, uh, March, last Sunday in March of 2020, our church officially closed like on the 22nd or 23rd. And we were here on the 29th or 30th, whatever that date was. But, uh, I prayed for that church and I'll just name it. It's Trace Church over on the West side. And, uh, the pastor just announced to his leadership group this last Sunday that they're never closing their church again, that he called it all wrong, and that he has seen it for what it was, and it was a lie, and they, they're never going to allow the, follow the governor's guidelines again, and they're never closing again. Good for him. That was 16 months of prayer on my part, yeah. on my prayer rock, um, but yeah, there, I just wanted to share some good news. I'm, I'm hearing a lot more churches that are starting to say that now. And, and even to the point, for a pastor to get up and say, man, I got the last 16 months wrong. Yeah. Guys, that's not very easy, okay? Yeah. That's a humility. That's, a, that's a, a repentance mentality. And then to say, we're never doing this again. I'm seeing this. Yeah. I'm seeing this right now across Springs, across the country, where churches are saying, we really, we were blinded. Now, the only thing that I would say if I was having a conversation with these guys is figure out why you were blinded, because that's as important as recognizing that you were. And I don't know, it's going to be different for every person. But figure out why you so easily did that so that next time you can see it coming and you don't do that again. The why is as important as anything else. Why do we do the things we do? That's as important. So, all right, we need to close. We need to finish. So, how are we going to pray? Yeah, pray for Afghanistan. Like I said, Friday night we're going to have a prayer here, 7 to 8 for that. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can go online and watch videos all day long of, of the Taliban just walking through Afghanistan, mowing people down, shooting them. Um, okay, I, about I, this. I would say focus on the cross. Okay. Yeah, get, get your, you know, Hebrews chapter 12, it just always comes back to us. Focus on Jesus 
so that you won't be uh, tricked by sin. You won't be tricked by Satan. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Yeah. And any one of these, anywhere that you can recognize that Satan would be lying to you, tempting you, messing with you, trying to deceive you, we name some of them, but there's many more than that in this room. Pay more attention to those and, and pray about them. God, show me. Show me when I am not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Show me when Satan is messing with me. Show me. And, uh, and, and then the Holy Spirit will. He, will. he will show you that stuff. Uganda. Uganda is crazy right now. Um, 215-something Christians were killed in Uganda last week. Just last week. You know, we, we do get moved by something like what's going on in Afghanistan, and we should. But we should also be moved. I, I've said this before to you guys. You should get on the email list for um, Voice of the Martyrs. You should get those emails. Because they tell you all kinds of stuff going on around the world constantly. Stuff you're not going to get any... I don't see it any other way, anywhere else except on right. Voice of the Martyrs. Right. Um, telling you about Christians. Right. So, so let's pray. God, we submit ourselves to you. We submit our lives, our mind, our thought process to you. God, you're the, you're the king. Um, Jesus, you're, you're the one that, it, that dispels fear. You're the one that destroys strongholds. You're the one that... That, that chases out disease and heals our bodies. God, you're the victor of all battles. You're the victor of all battles, even if Af in Afghanistan right now. Lord, we know that you can protect people in ways that make no sense. But you can protect them. And God, there are many people in Afghanistan right now that need you. Americans, people from other countries, Afghans that are... are the, the, the Taliban is, is destroying these people, God, and we ask you to, to protect them. Just protect them, Lord God. And uh, I, I pray the same thing for Christians around the world that are being martyred. Every day, Christians are killed. God, and we don't ever hear about it. We don't know about it. Lord, you know every one of those people. You know every one of them. And God, your word says that you give them a special place of honor in eternity. God, they're still on the earth and they're dying. And God, we ask you to cover them and protect them with your hand. God, protect people that are being brutalized. People that are being trafficked right now all across the world. Little girls and little boys that are being abused and taken advantage of. Right here in this country. God, we ask you to, to protect them. Rescue them. And Lord, I pray, help us to allow you to mobilize our hearts and our spirits to pray and to do something about what we can do something about. God, we can tell our next door neighbor about you and the broken marriage or the abused child or whatever's going on in that house. God, they can know you and you will change them and you will save them. And we know this to be who you are and what you want to do. So mobilize our hearts to accomplish what you need us to do. Lord, protect the pastors in Afghanistan, in Uganda right now. God, protect the pastors. So many of them being killed. In Haiti, Lord God. God, in Iran. Lord, all over the world, the people that need you. And help us not be distracted and get caught up in just ourself. Lord, help us to not just be about us, but to be about your people, your lost, your world. God, the people created in your image, they have no idea who you are. God, help us to be about them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Tomorrow night, my house, men, grillers, basically we, we cook meat and we pray. That's what we do. So um, I think 6 o'clock, is that when that happens? Good. 6 to 8. All righty, there you go. Um, and we do cut off at 8. We just stop and, and, um, and uh, we leave. So, all right, see you then.